If the book of Jonah ended with chapter 4, or chapter 3 rather, we'd have an incredible story with a happy ending. But it doesn't end with chapter 3. There's a chapter 4, and it reveals, along with the first two chapters, chapters 1 and 2, and chapter 4, it reveals really the main purpose of the book. Now, I, wanna, I actually want to get you, even right now, to understand something. If you're noticing, I'm not starting out with an illustration. You know, we're taught, by the way, to use the hook, book, look, and took method when you preach. So you always start out with an illustration. Well, I just violated that. I want to get us right into it. And I want you to really see that the book of Jonah is not really about the greatest revival that's ever occurred in history in the city of Nineveh. It's not really about that. It's about this guy named Jonah. Chapters 1, 2, and 4 center on Jonah. Only chapter 3 really talks about Nineveh. And by focusing, now listen, you got to get this, by focusing on the only Israelite in all of Nineveh, it proves that the book is really about Israel. Now, are you hearing that? The book of Jonah is about Israel. Now, listen to this. It's about Israel, which will point forward to the people of God, the true Jew, both Israelite and Gentile who have come to faith in Christ. So listen, the book of Jonah is really about the church today. It's really about the assembly of called out people, those who have been rescued from the world system, who were under the dominion of sin and put into the righteous community of God called the church. Whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, listen, they're all a Christian today. The book of Jonah is really written for us. You see, Israel was chosen by God to be a missionary people. The church has been created by God to be a missionary people. And Jonah's attitude reveals the same attitude that Israel had and the same attitude that the church has today. And God is going to be dealing with this as chapter 4 progresses. Let's watch him do it. I'm going to give you three points, and we're going to watch how God responds to a people that are his who have lost their point of focus. They're no longer on mission. We're going to watch this as he begins to deal with Jonah. Here's the first point. Jonah, Jonah did not love what he knew about God. That sounds a little abstract. Jonah did not love what he knew about God. Now, we saw previously, two weeks ago, that Jonah had a disconnect between his theology and the way that he lived. He had studied God. He was a theologian. He knew God. He knew God's ways. Now, look at verse 2, and you're going to see the evidence of that. Chapter 4, verse 2. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. This is theology. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. They are five attributes. Identical, by the way, to what Joel, who is another one of the prophets of God, what he lists in his book. They're found in Exodus chapter 34 from the pen of Moses. So Jonah had studied 
the Deuteronomic law. He knew God. He was a theologian. And I mentioned twice in this series, if you can recall, that even in Jonah's day that there were schools, there were seminaries for prophets. Did you know that? Do you remember me saying that? There were schools for prophets in those days. And they would study God, and they would study how to do ministry, they would study how to love, and they would be sent out to put that into practice. So Jonah had studied, he'd come out of seminary, he had a knowledge of God, but he didn't have a love, really, for God. You know, it's common, by the way, to come out of seminary with knowledge of God, but not a love for God. In fact, I know a man who, that, who went through seminary, and it actually dampered, it even damaged his love for God. He had all of that knowledge, and it began to strip God and put him into a micro-surgically um, precision abstract box of theology so god was this and god was that and all of a sudden it reduced god to ideas about god and he lost his love for god never even went into ministry it's possible to know the form of god to know the shape of god without really knowing God, without really becoming more like God. That's the trap of seminary. By the way, that's the trap of church. But the aim of the knowledge of God, now listen, this is something you want to put into your mind. You want to anchor it. You ready? All of your study, and we're always telling you, you got to be in the Word of God during the week. You know, I talked to somebody this last week who was down in the dumps. He was in a slump. He was really struggling. And I said, well, can I ask you a couple questions? Have you been in the Word of God? Have you been feasting on the living and active Word of God? He says, no. All right. Have you been praying? Have you been taking a part of your day and saying, you know what, undistractedly, with focus, God is just you and I. We're on, if you want to put it this way, a date. And we're going to pray, we're going to talk, I'm going to have a conversation, you and I got to get some things out. Have you done that? He says, no. Well, listen, we're telling you, you've got to be in the Word of God, you've got to be in prayer. It is the aim. Listen, when you do that, the aim, the goal, the purpose of studying and knowing the Word of God is this. You ready? This is huge. This is revolutionary, and this is unusual in today's Christians. The aim, the goal, is that you would love God more and become more like Him, transformed. That's the aim. You know what the common reason that people read the Word of God is to get more knowledge of God? That's a trap. You can have all the knowledge of the Lord that you want. It's going to puff you up if it doesn't start to find its way into your practice, if it doesn't begin to transform your life. So Jonah knew God's form. He knew his attributes, but didn't love what he knew. Now let's walk through these five attributes. And maybe you need to be introduced to God for the first time. Or maybe you need to be reintroduced to him. Let me walk through these five. You ready? The first one is gracious. We're in verse 2 means this, that God always gives his favor 
to undeserving people. Listen, if he were to give his favor to deserving people, then they get what they have earned. We call that a paycheck. Everybody is undeserving. Nobody is good. Nobody has done what is pleasing to God naturally so that God would say, wow, you're pretty good, therefore I love you. God's love and God's grace are bent towards the undeserving. He's always paying attention to the helpless. His heart always is motivated. He's always ready to pardon. He's always willing to drop the charges. That's what it means that God is gracious. Now listen, it doesn't mean that God has a lot of grace. Jonah doesn't say that. You should never say that. It is God is gracious. Now it's not a commodity that God has. It's an attribute that describes who God is. God is gracious. He is full of grace, but grace must be exercised. Picture in your mind a horse race. Now, have you ever really seen that when the camera zooms in, the jockey's on the back of the horse, the gate has not yet been dropped? The horses are trembling. They cannot wait. They are restless. The moment, the very split second that that gate drops, the horses leap and lurch into running. That's the graciousness of God. That's his attribute of gracefulness. He cannot wait to forgive you. Now Jonah knew this. He describes him and he moves on. God is merciful. You know what that means? It means compassionate. It's a word that describes a mother's compassion for the child that's in her womb. Now, ladies, you who have had children, you know this. And men, if you're married to one that's had a child, you know this. And some of you, and probably all of us, have seen this. Haven't you seen a woman whose belly is full? She has a baby in her belly, and she's always cradling it. Her hand is always rubbing that belly. That's the exact word that was used for a woman who would do that. Compassionate. Now listen, some of you think that God is not very compassionate, that God has allowed you to go through trial after trial, that God has stolen your joy. He's the cosmic killjoy. Listen, you need to reform your picture of God. You need to see who God really is. He is the compassionate God. And you are his child. And his hand closes over you protectively. His love enfolds you mercifully. That's the God that you have. But then he moves on. God is slow to anger. He's not quick-tempered. He's long-fused, what it means to be patient. God, Listen, God does not reactively get angry fast. Now, that might not be able to be said about you, and it might not be able to be said about me, but when God gets angry, listen, there was a long fuse before that dynamite blew. That's his patience. Some of us have had fathers or maybe mothers who had a very quick temper. And because of that, you might have formulated this conception and this perception that God is that quick-tempered parent. That the moment you do something wrong, he's not only disappointed in you, he is reactively angry. That's not God. He is not quick-tempered. He is slow to anger, and Jonah moves on. God is abounding in steadfast love. 
which has this sense of boundlessness. Do you understand that? Listen, I want you to think of this for a moment. I want you to picture being on Lake Nakamixon. We've kayaked that, I've fished that. Pretty much always see the other side. That's a boundaried lake. But then I want you to picture being on Lake Superior, which I have swam in. I'm sure some of you have as well. And you get out in that lake and you cannot see the other side. Now there's the picture of God's boundlessness. It's his abounding and steadfast love. It doesn't have parameters. You cannot get to the end of it and say, there, I've exhausted all of the love that God has for me. Listen, that's his steadfast love. It can never increase. It can never decrease. And it can never end towards you. It is boundless. It exceeds your wildest imagination. And then he moves on. Jonah knew that when sinners repent, God will relent from disaster. He'll relent from disaster. Parents, I want you to think of it like this for a moment. I'm sure we've all experienced that moment. When one of our children comes to us in tears of repentance... And they're asking maybe for forgiveness or they're admitting that they did something wrong that, they have, uh, that they're sorry for. Now listen, I want you to picture, and you probably have all felt this, if not for a child, maybe you're not a parent, maybe for a sibling, maybe for a friend or somebody that works with you or for you, you get angry. They've done something wrong, they've committed an infraction, they've tried to hide it, they've not come clean, and your anger, it won't let go. You cannot seem to get it out of you. You can't wait till, I hope they just come to me today and talk to me, because I'm going to give them a piece of my mind. And then they come in tears and they come in sorrow. And if you're like me, and I'm sure you can experience this or you've experienced this, when that happens in my family, that anger, that disappointment, that hurt that I was feeling toward my child, listen, it evaporates in a second. And all of a sudden, what was my diatribe that I had planned, my great wonderful lecture that I was going to give to them. It all just evaporates. It's all gone. And what's replacing it is a mercy and a love and a warmth in me. Well, listen, that's what it means when Jonah says that God relents from disaster. It's an instant and complete change of his mindset, his attitude the moment you repent. Are you hearing that? Jonah is telling you what God is like. He's telling you what God is like. The problem is he didn't love what he knew about God. He knew these things, and it was wonderful when he displayed them to Israel, but he didn't really love them when he displayed it to the Gentiles, particularly Nineveh. But our God does these things perfectly. He's never angrier than our sins deserve. He's always immediately relenting from judgment the moment that there is repentance. Now listen, that's theology. That's the study of God, theo-Godology study. That's, that's knowledge of God. And listen, here's what it looks like. Here's what it does. Now you ready? You're all going to understand this. It functions like a mirror. It functions like a mirror when 
God is the one in front of it. You see, theology begins to show you what God is really like. God begins to reveal who he really is. It shows you his excellency, his beauty, his perfection, his kindness, his mercy, and his steadfast love. And it shows you his disposition towards you. But then the angle of the mirror changes. See, that mirror, and this is what the Word of God does, by the way, the mirror, as you study it and you read it, is aiming towards God. Then all of a sudden, God says, you know what? Now you know about me. Now I want to show you what I know about you. And he begins to angle that mirror back to yourself. That's the power of the living and active Word of God. So you can't read Genuinely and sincerely, you cannot study the Word of God and remain unchanged. It's literally impossible. Your heart might harden, but you're not going to stay the same. Your heart might break, you might repent, you might hunger for God more. You might be, Psalm 42, like a deer that panteth, panteth for streams of water. But listen, that's because the Word of God is producing in you a hunger for God, a love for God, an appetite to know God more so that he can change you and I and make us more like him. But there's another point. Jonah did not live what he knew about God. He didn't love what he knew about God, but Jonah did not live what he knew about God. Have you ever been se severely disappointed with what God has allowed in your life. Now I want you to think through that because I probably have just captured everybody 40 years and older. Listen, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to promise you something. You don't have to live long to have your theology rocked. It is really hard to reconcile the pain of living in this world with what we know about God. You're rolling along in life when all of a sudden you encounter that bend in the road. Let me give you a few ways that this happens. That job that you thought was made for you is given to someone else. You, have, you were so close yet again, but denied. Your business that has been in the family for years fails under your watch. You've got generational humiliation. That wedding that you so enjoyed has turned into a marriage that you no longer even want to endure. That baby born with an illness or your child who walks angrily away from your, their faith in God. Listen, when we are plunged into the deep end of the pool of pain, there is a coldness toward God that could begin to develop and creep over your soul. And that coldness begins to dampen and darken joy, begins to destroy worship, begins to block prayer, begins to extinguish your testimony, it crushes your hope. That's the place that we're about to find Jonah. That's where we're going to find him. Some of us have been there. I've been there. It is very much a place I hope to God I never have to go again, but probably will. It's a place of incredible transformation. 
But Jonah is no different than us. He struggles the way that we do, and he found himself in a place where he no longer even wanted to live. Have you ever been that place? Not so much, although you may have, where you wanted to kill yourself. I'm not talking suicide, because Jonah is not at suicide. Let me walk through that in a minute. He's just in a place where he doesn't want to live anymore. Have you been there? Where God, just take me. Just take me to glory. I am done with this world. Verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. Have you ever been there? Let me tell you, Jonah shares some high-powered company with many who no longer wanted to live in the Word of God. You've got Elijah, can you remember that one, who served God so obediently? But when the wicked queen of Israel, Jezebel, did not repent along with the nation, Elijah walks into the desert by himself, lays under a broom tree, and asked God to take his life. Remember Moses? who had to endure for, his, for 40 years a faithless, grumbling Israel yet again, one time after another, an Israel that would not stay true to their God. And he comes to God, he says, I am not able to carry all the people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If this is the way my life is going to be, I'm done. Just take it. It's yours. Or Job, in his unimaginable suffering who said let the day perish on which i was born and the night that said a man is conceived let it perish because i hate that day listen this is not suicidal intent and the bible does not sanction that it will not allow anyone to feel like they have the right to take their own life it is the utmost desire that life would just end that's what jonah has See, suffering can be terrible. You know what suffering does? Listen, suffering never compartmentalizes. If you've got a physical, painful malady, it doesn't just touch your body. It touches your emotions. It touches your mind. It touches your faith. It touches your hope. It touches everything of who you are. Suffering can be terrible emotionally, physically, mentally. And it can get to the point where a person just wants to give up on life. Sorrow and pain have overshadowed for Jonah the desire to get up and keep going. All right, so now let's deep dive into this. Look at the verse 3. Notice who his focus is on. It is better for me to die. Now look at me for just a moment. This is so important. You're going to get, many of you are going to get to this place in life. You're going to need to know this. I want you to pound it into your mind now as an anchor so that when suffering comes and it begins to extinguish hope, which it will for almost all of us, when it comes into your life and it attacks you, begins to grind you, you need to get back to this. It is better for me to die. This is what disappointment with God does. and moves our eyes to ourselves. That's the trap. But not only does the self become paramount or attends to in suffering, 
and of greatest importance, listen, it leads to a self-deceptive thought that I'm the one that knows what's best for me. You see what he says? It is better for me to die is an incredible statement that, God, I know what's best for me, not you. And God, if you will not do what I know is best for me and for my happiness, I don't want to live any longer. Listen, this is where you get to when suffering moves you to sit on the throne and ask God to move over or get off because it's time for you to rule your life. It's time for you to manage it. And when you sit on that throne long enough, you really begin to believe the lie that you are a better God than God. We're going to see soon that this is the trump card that Jonah throws down to try to get God to do what he wants, which, by the way, is the total destruction of Nineveh. Let's, point to, let's get to point three, and we're going to see that. Jonah needed to learn what God knew about him. Now, are you, are you capturing, capturing the abstractness of this? Jonah needed to learn what God knew about him. He didn't love what he knew, and he didn't live what he knew, but he needed to know what God knew about him. I want to share with you a secret blessing that I think the minority of Christians have the privilege of receiving. You see, for many Christians, God opens up the curtains over their hearts, and he gracefully exposes what is inside now, I want you to grab the imagery in your mind. He takes the curtains and he, he pulls them wide over the heart. And if there's blinds on there, and if you're sophisticated like me, you got blinds, you got curtains, you got a little sheen of something that's going to try to triple protect. Listen, if you're like me, that's what I'm like. And God throws them wide, raises the blind, and pulls off the barrier. And he begins to show Jonah what's inside his heart. You know what it looks like? It looks like this. I want you to picture a contractor coming to your house and opening up your shower wall so that you can see the mold growing there, helping you understand why you're constantly having lung problems and allergies. Or I want you to picture a dentist backlighting your x-rays, showing you the, the infection in the, the root of your tooth causing the ache. Or I want you to see in your mind a mechanic who's got your car up on a lift and says, hey, come on in here and come under here because I want you to see the hole in your catalytic converter, which is why your car doesn't have any power. Now, are you getting that? This is what God is about to do for Jonah. And it's one of the most common ways that God does this, and I'm going to tell you how he does it. You ready? you got to hear this, because this is what he does all through the Bible. This is what he's going to do for you. He asks you redemptive questions. You want to be a counselor one day? Well, let me tell you that the questions that begin with what, where, how, and when— those are excellent questions. You've got to ask them. They're data-gathering questions is where you're trying to get information about the person who's suffering that you're trying to help. But all you're doing is snorkeling on the surface of their hearts. You want to pull back the blinds? You want to get down in their heart? You've got to ask the why. 
because the why questions target their motives, their dreams, their expectations, their anger, their hopelessness, their crushing of their souls. The why gets you down into the heart. And one of God's most common ways to expose our hearts is to ask these redemptive questions. They have surgical precision. They're ground-penetrating sonar. They get to the very depths of us, the living and active Word of God. It's like a bunker-buster bomb, and his delivery systems, listen, they're preachers, they're teachers, they're counselors, they're godly friends, they're the Word of God, and sometimes he uses the B2 spirit stealth bomber, and you don't even see it coming, and it's so high above you. Remember King David? He didn't see Nathan coming. You are the man, exploded in his heart and sometimes god uses the f-22 raptor approach that's the fast and precise strikes like he did with peter when he asked him three times if he loved him gave him that divine echo question and then finally god sometimes uses the abrams and the bradleys of the ground attack crushing your defenses obliterating your justifications just like he did with job all 180 questions Whatever approach God uses, listen, he knows exactly what questions are going to open up your heart so that you can see what's inside of yourself. See, his questions go down deep and bring up for you to see what he's been seeing the whole time. And look at verse 4. And the Lord said, could just simply say, the Lord asked, do you do well to be angry? Put it in the NIV, New International Version. Have you any right to be angry? The New Living Translation. Is it right for you to be angry about this? Here's my favorite. I think it makes most sense. The New American Standard Bible says, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Now, think with me for a second, because you've really got to master your understanding of why God asks questions. Why? Why does he ask Jonah this question? Hasn't it ever dawned on you that the very first person to ever ask a question in the Bible was Satan? That was the first question ever asked. Now the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see, the devil's motive in asking this question, and this is always the devil's motive, is to create doubt in the word of God. Did God actually say? See, the number one strategy of Satan is to undermine and attack the word of God. you got to know that, Christian. If you want to know how the devil works, listen, he's not that sophisticated. He doesn't have an endless array of ploys and plots and strategies. He doesn't have that many of them. And they all revolve around this one. He's got to undermine. He's got to discredit. He's got to lower your confidence in the word of God. Every heresy does this. 
See, Satan has waged an overt and covert war against the scriptures. He twists it, makes us reimagine it, whittle it away, file parts of it into antiquity. That's old. It is dusty. Or overemphasize other parts, like God hates gays, which he doesn't. He do, but this is what the devil does. He takes it out of context. It's an all-out war on God's word, and he's disturbingly effective. See, the questions of Satan are engineered, crafted, intended to cause you and I to doubt God at his word. Genesis goes on. Satan says, you will, surely, you will not surely die. That's an all-out attack now. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You've got to set up the question. It's, an, it's a one-two punch. It's the setup to the punchline. You've got to undermine it and then you contradict it. And if he can do that in you, Christian brother and sister, listen, your faith is not long before it will begin to fail. Now look at the second person in the Bible to ask a question. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he's going to ask a flurry of questions. And he said, I heard, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. You see, God's questions have a different motive than Satan's. See, God's questions are intended to bring out from what is being hidden into the open so that it can be dealt with. I want you to picture in your mind a sci-fi movie where the explorers are standing on the lip of a deep and dark hole that goes straight down into the earth and somebody lights a flare and throws it down that hole. Now, there's movies that have this exact imagery in it. And as a flare goes down and it's rotating, you get to see what's down there until it gets to the bottom. So that's the exact nature of God's questions. The flare does what the questions of God do as he drops them deep into our hearts and he lights up what is there. His questions light up the hiding, rationalizing, blame-shifting hearts of Adam and Eve. And they do the same for us. Go back to Jonah chapter 4. Do you do well to be angry, or do you have good reason to be angry? God asks Jonah if being this angry was doing anything good for him. Jonah, is this accomplishing anything? Is it improving your life? Is it resulting in glad salvation of those around you? For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 Is your anger really working? And it kind of seems to me that it would be really good if I could teach you what was taught me on how to discern when your anger is good, and when your anger is good, or when it's bad. 
I mean, how do you discern, how do you know when your anger is righteous or when it's unrighteous? When it's pleasing to God or not pleasing to God? How do you know the difference? I'm going to give you seven ways that Thomas Brooks, a Puritan pastor long dead, discerned for us. Seven ways to distinguish between good anger and bad. Now listen, before we even look at the first one, look at me for just a moment. Can I sort of trust that almost everybody in here struggles with anger? I mean, I haven't met a whole lot of people in my life that haven't. And most of them, whether they were in, when I was in professional counseling and they were so medicated, they were nearly catatonic. I don't know very many people who don't struggle with anger. And I don't really know, I know even less people who know how to distinguish when their anger is good or when their anger is bad. So let me give you seven ways to do that that Thomas Brooks gives us. Here we go, you ready? Boy, I, I would encourage you. Parents, write these down. Teach them to your children. Learn them. Anger is sinful when it rises up against God. It is never not sinful when it rises against God. You cannot have God-blaming, God-indicting anger that is righteous. It's impossible. It betrays the true character. Secondly, anger is sinful when it disturbs our ability to reason and make right judgments. You can get so angry you can't think straight. That's unrighteous. This is, at the core, what's wrong with Jonah's anger. He truly he truly felt that he had the right to tell God what he should do about Nineveh. He felt fully righteous, fully justified in sentencing Nineveh to death for their sins. And we do the exact same thing when we do not let go of somebody's offenses against us, even when they've asked for forgiveness. Number three, anger is unrighteous when it leads to sinful words or actions. Listen, if you really want to know if your anger is good, watch where it leads. If you want to know if it is wrong, watch where it leads. If it leads to profanity, if it leads to doubt, if it leads to accusations of God and slander against others, listen, you can see in the end game what, what the condition was in the original. Anger is wrong when it is greater in measure than what the cause warrants. There's been more than one time where I've gotten so angry at something, and then when sanity comes back into my mind, I just sit there and go, why on earth was I that angry? This is not that big of a deal. Listen, anger that is unrighteous, listen, it, it is springing from a heart that is very, very drunk in its own power. Anger that is unrighteous and out of measure to what is normal, what is sane, what is credible, is drunk in its own power. And you have climbed up on that throne and is meant to bring your realm back to order, but it destroys everybody in the process. Anger is wrong when it prevents or stops us from loving God or other people. Jonah does not even answer God. Did you look at this, verse 5? God asks him this question. Jonah doesn't even answer him. Look what it says. He went out of the city. 
to not answer somebody's question, listen, especially someone that is in authority over you, is utmost distract, disrespect. I dare you to try that with your boss on Monday. It's to see what happens. Jonah doesn't answer him. He realizes he has no defense. He has no grounds for his anger. God had simply done nothing wrong. One little question from God drove him into silence. I mean, you ever notice that the most miserable people on the planet are those who just seem to be always angry with God? They are just absolutely miserable. The word angry in God's question, verse 3, that word angry means burning up as with fire. Jonah is your anger that's burning you, that is consuming you like a fire does with wood in your wood stove. Is it really doing anything good for you? Miserable people are unloving people. Number six, when it persists longer than its effectiveness, then anger is wrong. When it just won't end. Your anger might have moved somebody to realize that they had offended you and they may have apologized, but if you can't let go of it, that is unrighteous anger. And anger finally is wrong when it is used as a means to a selfish end. Now, I want you to look at verse 5. You're going to see this. And Jonas went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, I want you to think about this. This is kind of pretty cool, actually. Has it ever dawned on you to really think deeply, why did Jonah go east of the city he didn't go north he didn't go south he didn't go west some would say well that's you know the sun rises in the morning and sets i don't really know the significance of that why does he go east of the city and then all of a sudden i want you to start remembering east in the bible is amazingly consistently the place where god is not it's the place out of the presence of God. Not literally. It's that God holds his favor back from the east. Think of Adam and Eve when they were jettisoned out of the garden. They went east of the Garden of Eden. And God put the flaming sword on the east side to prevent them from coming back in. Think of Cain where God drove him, that murderer, from his own presence. And Cain went out from the Lord's presence and settled in the east. Think of the metaphorical river of Ezekiel that's flowing from the temple and it goes out east of the city of Jerusalem into the dry and barren world in need of God's salvation. Think Israel, which comes from the east and travels through the flood stage of the Jordan into the west, into the promised land. Or think of the direction if you wanted to get into the temple. You came from the east, outside of the presence of God through the gates, through the courts, into the holy place and the most holy place on the western part of the temple grounds. Listen, east in the Bible stands for where God's presence, presence is not. Jonah goes directly east of the city where his sulking heart hoped to see the mind of God changed. Now listen, this is significant. If you are angry at God for suffering that he has allowed in your life, 
If you're enraged with God because things have happened that you don't like and you would have managed your life differently, and if you're indicting God for wrongdoing on you and your heart is now hardened and bitter towards him, listen, you you are living in the land of the east. You have shut yourself off from the presence of the Lord. You're not enjoying his favor. And Jonah goes east of the city, hoping to see God's mind change. Look what it says, till he should see what would become of the city. He's hoping that his pouting, his anger has manipulated God to change his mind to, in, to after all, and uh, destroy the Ninevites. But his is an anger that is completely wrong, and God loves him way too much to leave him there. And when we return to Jonah 4 again, we're going to see what God's going to do for his angry, warring prophet that he loves. Let me end with three very, very brief points, and I'm going to rattle them off. Here's the first one. Here's what I hope you take away. Will you learn, my friends, to discern the nature of your anger and, and learn to know when it is right or when it is wrong? Can I remind you what David Pollison once said? He is a theologian counselor. He didn't mean this literally. He means it powerfully. He says 95% of our anger is unrighteous. In other words, almost all of it. That's been true in my life. I'm pretty sure it's going to be true in your life as well. Will you learn to discern the nature of your anger, knowing when it is right and when it is wrong? Number two, will you let go of the charges and the accusations that you might have built up against God? Despite what your emotions might say otherwise, they have no basis in truth. And until you confess them out of your heart, they're going to move you away from his presence into the barren east of living, which is joyless, until you find yourself wandering in a circle of despair and misery. Let go of the charges. Now listen, don't do it this way. This is liberal theology at its worst. You don't need to forgive God because God's never done anything wrong. Don't buy that junk theology. You need to trust God and let his grace and his steadfast love and his quick to relent and slow to anger attributes permeate your soul again and bring you out of the east and into his favor of his west. And finally, number three, will you learn to trust that no one will ever love you like God already does? You will never find love like God's. Amen?